If I saw you on the street And you said come and follow me We had three healthy, wonderful children and we're very content with that. And after three miscarriages um, and really trusting God and feeling the calls that we were supposed to have a larger family, we stepped out in faith towards adoption. The twin boys were the first foster kids we, we got after our home was open. And uh, after that, after we took them into our home, we fostered a, a three-year-old little girl for a little while. And then she went to another family, and we still have the twins. We've had the twins a year. I think really when it started making sense is when we quit trying so hard to, to make things happen. And we were physically, we, we were trying to make everything fall into place. And when we got so frustrated, we kind of threw our hands up and said, you know what? whatever happens happens is really when God you know really when in our lives looking back on it that's when we see that's when God really just took control when when we let go he took control and 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 from that point forward it was us listening Unloading and in and out of a, a vehicle with five kids and trying to get everything and not forgetting anything that I really need especially on trips to Walmart um, having two children in therapy and running around the doctor's appointments all the time um, is definitely a challenge. And um, even other foster parents saying, I don't know how you can do all the therapy and do all of this, but I always go back to it's not me, it's God that gives me the strength to, to care for them and love them the way that He wants me to love them. When we let go and we just made it a lifestyle, you know, it's it's a it's a whole different world. And it's not just a one-time thing. You know, you got to wake up the next day when you're exhausted and say, "Okay, God, I give it to you again, and this is my life, and use it." He's worth my sacrifice of time and not having any time for myself. He's worth having to really go the extra mile to make time in His Word every aspect of my life, work, family, home, money, everything, just feels more complete and more in unison with God's Word the more of myself I give up, so absolutely He's worth it. That's when you feel how God kind of feels about you, us when we are obedient to Him, you know, that moment when everybody knows you're loved and it's, it's a cool feeling. My Father, my love, you can have me. I don't know about you, but I have enjoyed in this series exploring the radical expressions of our faith. And that there's not any one set way that faith is radical. That there are many expressions, as we have seen in the way people handle their money, in where people live around the world, in the halls, in their, in their testimony. Think about the Branscombs and how they just even use their homes and the space in their homes and the space in their lives to make room for, again, what something doesn't seem normal. Whenever you have a healthy family already, why would you add two more? The different expressions of taking their faith seriously to a life-altering level is a beautiful part of this entire journey that we're on. 
a dull God, a plain Jane God, a mediocre God, needs just a normal, predictable commitment. But when we're talking about it, a God who is radical in His love for us, radical in His sacrifice for us, how can I be plain Jane in my life? How can I be limited in my life when God sowed no limits in His? When you think about God had one son, one son, not five that He could choose from and send the worst. He had one son and He made him a sacrifice for us. He sent this one son to earth again. I know this is Christianity 101, but hang with me on this. Relive it. Let it become alive in you again to realize again the radical love of God and that He took that one son, He sent him to this earth He, in some kind of absurd, crazy devotion, radical love for us. He risked it all. He put His son on a cross. A criminal's cross. A cruel cross. A cross that he did not deserve to go to. And he put him on that cross and allowed him to die. The innocent for the guilty. He became the substitutionary atonement for my guilt, your guilt, my sin against God, my sin against humanity. He became the, the, the actual sacrifice that paid for it all. Now how can that be that I have this amazing love of a God for, in heaven who created me because He radically loves me. And He radically loves you. And that has just got to energize us and we have to relive it a day in and day out or it becomes a Sunday school lesson that we lose. This past summer, we kind of, at the end of the summer, July 18th, I believe to be exact, we went into started, launched into this radical concept. Radical not because it is cult-like. Radical because it is not normal. Radical because the, the expression of Americanized, domesticated Christianity that is impotent and anemic at best is not the biblical Christianity that we see. And I would hope and pray that in this time from mid-July to the present, you have at multiple times and on multiple levels have been made to feel uncomfortable. Not necessarily, again, guilty, but maybe convicted. Maybe uncomfortable and having to wrestle with the tension. As we've heard body life groups discuss and talk amongst themselves, and as they've wrestled with it's all been a healthy pursuit that we have been on we have seen examples we've seen examples of of a stephen we've seen examples of a mary bethany as the earliest last week we have been warned of detours and dead ends that could easily get us off the biblical way and get us on a lesser less requirement less involved less ask on ourselves of ourselves we we've found those ways but we've also been warned of those ways because we want to move away from that muddled Christianity of America to a more biblical Christianity. And again, I hope and pray to God that you have felt, as I have felt, multiple times, uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. I've told you before, my job as a pastor is to, to comfort the afflicted, but at times to afflict the comforted. 
That's a, that's a, that's a, de- a delicate role because even as I am having to wrestle with my own life, then all of us must wrestle as well. Take your Bibles, we find the book of Hebrews. Because what we deal with today is, is absolutely, and what we deal with it when we talked about the dead ends and the detours of, of, of the faith, we realize that, that mediocrity is absolutely one of the, one of the tools, if you will, that Satan would love for you to slip into. He would love for you to slip into some state of, 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 of unconsciousness faith, not a conscious faith, of, of an unintentional faith rather than an intentional faith. He would love for you to slip into mediocrity where, where you just coast along rather than drive forward and push forward and ask yourself and others the tough questions of the faith. Well, Hebrews is probably one of the earliest Well, as we have, it's one of the first century believers writing. We don't know who the writer of of Hebrews is. Some have speculated Barnabas and Paul. Some have speculated that it may have been Apollos. The only maybe, if it were Apollos, it would be the only writings that we would have of Apollos. So who is it? We don't really know. Even the early church fathers kind of rest on the fact that we don't know who wrote it. It's an anonymous writer. He doesn't identify himself. And so we kind of have this writing. But as he's writing, it's a very powerful book. It's a transitional book, if you will, of the Old Testament coming into the New Testament. It's a great tying together of the two. And as the as he's comparing and drawing the connection of the Old Testament to the New Testament, he talks about this king, Melchizedek, and he talks about this, this great king and how, how Christ is like him. And then he just stops. And almost in mid-sentence. Almost in mid-thought. He said, guys, I can't go any further. We can't talk about this anymore. See, what had happened is mediocrity had slipped into the camp. And no longer could he go deeper into the faith and no longer could he take them further in the faith because mediocrity had slipped in and because it had slipped in, they had stunted. It had stunted their growth. It was almost like a form of spiritual retardation, if you will. That no longer was this a vibrant, growing faith in pace with the with their with their life and their life experiences and as God's revelation. It wasn't in line with that. It was just stunted. It had just stopped. It had been dwarfed. And the reality is, is that their capacity to know, get this, their capacity to know was dwarfed by their commitment to live. Their capacity to know, to know God, to know His truth. To know who he was. Because he was explaining who God was. And he had to stop mid-sentence and say, no, 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 I can't go any further than this. It was dwarfed by their commitment to live. On, full, on, all in. Chips on the table, push it forward. We're going for God. It was stunted by that. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. And you can kind of even catch the tone. In this Hebrews, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, it says, About this we have much to say. Again, he's having to stop and say, Listen, i got a lot more to say. I can't even put it in writing. It says, And it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by a constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
Now, chapter 6 is really just a continuation of the same thought. So he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Their commitment, their life, their, their capacity to know was being affected not by their limited access to truth. They were literally having one of the authors of the New Testament being their teacher. Paulus, Barnabas, Paul, whoever it was. They were literally being taught by one who had walked with Jesus and seen the resurrected Christ. So it wasn't their lack of information. Neither in America are we lacking information. We have more Christian teaching on the radio. We have more Christian teaching in books than we could ever consume or contain within us. It was not their lack of knowledge and lack of access to the knowledge of the truth. There was something that was that was shortcutting it, that was dwarfing it, that was that was that was causing a a, a, a a slip in the faith, and it was something that was serious enough that the writer stopped and said, I got so much more to tell you, but I just can't tell you. And I wonder sometimes as I look across America and I wonder Again, Christian radio, Christian television, Christian books, Christian t-shirts, Christian bumper stickers, Christian, 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 Christian. We, I mean, we, we have so many sources of Christianity. We listen to James Dobson for how to raise our kids. We read Tim LaHaye or Tim, uh, Ted Decker for how to, to, to be entertained through Christian novels. We listen to Christian music on KLRC. But yet sometimes I wonder if we have really slipped into mediocrity because of the overabundance? I don't know. Or maybe it's because of our faith just simply being stunted. Where are we at? And if we do not take a serious, serious look inside of ourselves and a serious examination of our lives, then I'm afraid that what we will do is we'll compare ourselves with one another and we'll say, I'm as good as that person. I give as much as that person. I serve as much as that person. I'm, I'm as mature as that person. So therefore, that's my standard. That's my plumb line. Instead of looking at the Scriptures and the Stevens and the Mary of Bethany's and, and the Jesus of the Scriptures and said, that's my sample. That's my example. That's my standard. Maybe, just maybe, our capacity to know has been dwarfed by our commitment to live as well. Maybe, maybe we are our own worst enemy when it comes to the faith. I, I go back to a quote from Alan and Deborah Hirsch from their book Untamed. A quote that I that I gave in the very first message of the of the series, and I because I want to come back to it is we kind of are coming down the we're putting the landing gear down. We're about to land in this series over over the next couple of weeks, and as we as we land this plane, the we don't all get off and get on another plane. But this becomes our life, and I want us to go back to one of the very first statements that I said. I said to be truly radical disciple does not does require excuse me a relentless evaluation of life's priorities. A relentless evaluation. A relentless going in and probing and asking ourselves the tough questions and being willing to, to, to alter our life and our priorities. To be persistent and uncompromising in this, in the evaluation of our life, together with an ongoing rigorous critique of our culture to ensure that we are not adopting 
values that subvert the very life and the message that we are called to live out. That we would so look into our culture and say, am I more like an American Christian or am I more like a biblical Christian? Am I more like the the life that Christ would have me to live and the one that He modeled for me and Stephen modeled for me and many of the other great followers of Christ in the early church follow? Am, Am I like them or am I like the comfortable, casual, careful, careless believers of my day? I'm afraid if we're like that, we may be a lot like the Hebrew people. If the Hebrew people were standing before us that this, this book of Hebrews was, was written to, and again, we don't know a whole lot of its history and all of its origin and also where it's, where it's going. There's some tie to Italy, and maybe he was writing from Italy, or maybe he was in, writing to the believers in Italy. We don't exactly know whom, to whom, to where, and all that kind of stuff. But there's some connection to Italy. And you know what is it that's going on here in these believers? And I want to just give you, real quickly, three confessions of a shallow believer today. That if you look at this text, that maybe these three confessions of a shallow believer might just actually look a lot like me if I look in the mirror today. The first confession is that I am a lazy listener. I am a lazy listener. There's an element of our brain. It's a very small part of our brain. It's actually just located on the stem of our brain towards the back of our head. And it's called the reticular activating system. The reticular activating system. The RAS system of our brain that it actually enables us to, to, to filter life around us. It's, it's, it's like this. The reticular activating system steps into play whenever you live right next door to the train tracks. When you live right next door to the air, airport and you have these great big jets that move in and move out and you have trains that go by and I was with a guy recently from Birmingham, Alabama who lives right next to the airport. He says, when the plane comes over, our dishes shake. And I said, wow, that's serious. You're in, you're in the flyway. You know, whenever you feel the, 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 the house shake because the planes are coming on, I said, how do you live there? How do you sleep? He says, you just get used to it. You just get used to it. See, what he didn't realize is what happens is he wasn't just getting used to it. The reticular activating system of his brain had told him, hey, there's not a plane coming through the living room right now, that that plane is flying over us and landing and everything's going to be okay, and I can just block it out and I can sleep like a baby. The reticular activating system has a spiritual element to where I think that we have this ability, this amazing ability to just kind of tune God down. Maybe not out, but down. And then we'll tune Him up whenever we want to. Whenever we're discouraged, whenever we need hope and help and healing, whenever we need something like that, we'll just tune into God's frequency, tune Him up, and just kind of be energized in our spirit. But whenever the voice of God begins to call us out and call us up and call us to a deeper level of commitment, we say, you know what, that makes me uncomfortable. I'm just going to tune you out. What happens in the life of a believer is he develops a reticular activating system spiritually. And he can just tune God out. He can become a lazy listener. In fact, if you look at this text, you find him saying something very much similar to this in verse 11. He says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since we have become, since you have become dull of hearing. One scholar said that that word dull literally meant to be lazy. 
We have become lazy listeners. When God calls us, when God's challenging us, when God's calling us to a higher commitment, we just kind of tune Him off and tune Him out and we move on and we don't listen to the valued words of God whenever He's calling us to a lifestyle change. Psalm 107 verse 43 says, Whoever is wise, let him heed these things. There's a, there's, a, there's a choice, there's, a, there's, a, there's something that happens between information and transformation. Information comes, we decide if transformation continues. He said the wise person will heed. Also, Proverbs 16.20 says, whoever gives heed to, uh, to instruction prospers. There's an element of us choosing to obey. In this series of messages, God may have pointed out to you a number of things of your life. Have you chosen to obey? Have you chosen to tune Him out? Don't become a lazy listener. Number two, what happens whenever the confession of a shallow believer comes up? It says, I am a casual consumer of the faith. I'm a casual consumer of the faith. Again, if you keep on reading in in Hebrews, you keep on reading in this text, you say, for, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. You should be here, but you're not. You're actually back here. And what happens when you're back here? He, listen to this. He says, again, you need the basic principles. You need the basic You don't even get prayer. You don't even get service. You don't even get giving. You don't even get what it means to forgive. You don't even get what it means to love. You don't even get the very basics of the basics of the basics. In fact, he literally uses a phrase here, the basic principles or, or the, you know, the basic principles of oracles of God. It's literally a phrase used for an elementary fr- uh, child going to school, learning his ABCs or maybe in, in, the, or in the Greek language, his alpha, beta, gammas. His ABCs. You've got to relearn your alpha, beta, gammas, your ABCs. You haven't even got those down. You've lost them. It, it amazes me sometimes when we equate Christian maturity with time spent as a Christian. That is one of the biggest lies you can believe. Or the number of churches you've been a part of. Or who was your pastor. Or who was your teacher. Or who you taught. That's what, that's what maturity is. Notice what he says here. He says, you ought to be teaching. You ought to be teaching. One of the greatest signs of Christian maturity is not that you have had all these great Bible scholars pouring into you. Not that you got all these verses in your head. Not that you've attended all these Bible classes. No, 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 no. It's the fact that you are taking what you have been given and you are teaching others. You are passing it on. I want you to say this with me. Reproduce everything. Say it with me. Reproduce everything. Say it again. Reproduce everything. If God values it, reproduce it. Reproduce people. Reproduce. If if God's taught you something on faith, reproduce it. Pass it on to somebody else. Help somebody else who's going through a faith crisis moment. If God's taught you something through trials... Listen, don't waste a pain. Take that pain and pass it on. How did God work in that? Was God silent in your pain? And how did you reconcile that in your life? 
See, there's so much that we go through that sometimes we just keep to ourselves the lessons that we learn, the Bibles. I love it when a new believer takes on a role in we world and sets down with children, not knowing the books of the Bible, not knowing all the stories of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus, but just takes one week at a time, studies that lesson, goes in and teaches it. Studies the next week's lesson and teaches it to a child who's under the age of five. Again, that child is not going to critique you or grade you. But they just take it in a simple childlike way and they just give it in a simple childlike way. I spent a number of years by force, not by choice, studying Greek and Hebrew. Three years of Greek, two years of Hebrew to get my uh, degrees. And, and as I was studying these, these one dead language and this, these old languages and struggling through them, I remembered one class I had in psychology that talked about how you learn and the best way to learn. They talked about studies that were done and somebody who goes into a class and just listens and doesn't take notes or somebody who goes into a class and listens and takes notes or someone who goes into class and listens and takes notes and studies those notes within 72 hours of leaving class or somebody who goes into class and right on down the line to the person who goes into class, takes notes, studies those notes and then teaches those notes. And they said the greatest retention is the person who turns around and teaches what he's been taught. The greatest retention so what I did with my straight A, who I'd like to slap, st- uh, uh, roommate, straight A's in every class, Hebrew and Greek. He was already a straight A student, sitting next to me, trying to help me out along the way. I began in our dorm room at night to teach him Greek. Now, he would correct me when I'm wrong, but he would listen. And I would articulate it. And it was something about articulating. It was something about getting it out. It was something about being able to formulate it in the mind and get it to the next person, to get it to the next level, that really it became mine. And I didn't graduate with A's, but I graduated with B's. And I was excited to just graduate. But you know what happens whenever we take our faith and we begin to reproduce it into other people's lives? It creates a maturity level in us that is missing, I think, in our world today. It ought not be a twisting of the arm. It ought to be a standing room only in line for people ready to teach children, teenagers, and adults their faith that's been given to them. The problem is, is mediocrity slips in and we become casual believers in the faith, consumers only of the faith. Here's the third confession. Third confession is that I'm living in mediocrity, not pursuing maturity. We become stagnant. We become stayed. Become stale. We become complacent. And I'm okay. This is good enough. But you notice what the writer of Hebrews does in frustration. As he comes and he says this to them. He says, therefore, let us leave. Notice the motion. Notice that he talks about something in motion. Let us leave, what? The elementary doctrine of Christ. And let us go. Again, two words of motion. Let us go to maturity. Was he trying to say that the elementary principles of Christ were not significant? Absolutely not. But it's time for us to leave here and to go to there. It's time that there's to be movement. There's time to be movement. And when there's movement, there's friction. And when there's friction, there is change. 
We need to see movement, friction, change in our life. And so this series of radical is only trying to stir up movement in our life that create friction in our life that will generate change in our life. The problem is some people do this. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not changing. I'm not rearranging my priorities, Mike. You can talk all day about that. I'm not going to make you any more than... I'm very happy in my faith. I'm living in mediocrity and not pursuing maturity. Maturity is movement. Not just sideways energy, movement forward. Where today are you further down your, the road in your commitment to Christ than you were just since July 18th? Think about it like that. How much further are you in giving, serving, loving, forgiving? You just take all the attributes, take all the virtues of the faith. Where are you? Are you going anywhere? Please, let's not be the slumbering, stagnant, dwarf, stunted, retarded, if you will, believers. There needs to be movement. Archibald Hart said it like this. He says, if history teaches us anything... It is that spiritual formation or maturity and hurriedness are not compatible companions. I'm not talking about busyness. I'm talking about focused energy. Focused commitment. You've been reading, hopefully, 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 you've been reading through David Platt's book, Radical. That's only been a complimentary section of our study. It's only complimentary because I think it adds value to what we've already been looking at in crazy love and other messages and so forth. And if you haven't, then you've missed the final chapter. Maybe you put it on the shelf, gave up, called this guy a hoax a long time ago. You've missed the final chapter. The final chapter talks about five challenges he calls all of us to. And you know the thing is, is I've talked with people and there has not been anybody that I've talked to that has said, Platt is unbiblical. Now they may say, Platt is challenging. Platt has made me uncomfortable. They may have said these messages have really, mm, have made me reach a discomfort level rather than a comfort level. And all I can say to that is that's okay. That's a part of the movement. That's a part of the friction. That's a part of that energy that needs to happen inside of us. That movement towards maturity. But in the last chapter of Platt's book, he talks about five commitments. So I'm going to bring those in today and I'll finish up here. These five commitments are the five commitments that we need to be about. I'm, in fact, I'm going to ask you over the next week not to make these five commitments today. I'm going to ask you over the next week to make these five commitments. And maybe you won't make five. Maybe you'll make three. I would ask you to prayerfully consider five. It's like going to the, the physical trainer of a gym. They ask of you more than you think you can give. And you know what? You can give more. First thing that he challenges us in, in his book in the last chapter, he says, I want everyone to take a year to pray for the entire world. That's a big task. But we've talked about over the past weeks, the unreached people groups in the world, the over 6,400 different unreached people groups in the world. How can we not pray for them? How can we not take time? You say, I can't go to Mali. I can't go to West Africa. I can't go to... Indonesia, I can't go to these places that the church goes to. Well, you know what? Every single one of us can pray. And if we can't pray, then there is something seriously wrong with our faith. 
And it's not just, I'm going to pray whenever it comes to my mind, because guess what? It won't come to your mind. It is an intentionality about us that we must have. I have a toolbox up here today because I thought, what are some basic tools that we need? I want to show you some tools here in a few moments. But what do you pray for when you pray for the world? Jot a couple of these down. Number one, you need to pray for open doors. You need to pray for open doors. Randy Sprinkle says it like this. Contrary to popular opinion, missionaries are not the ones who open areas where people don't have access to the gospel. Mission prayers are the ones that open the breach. Missionaries come in behind them. If we would take seriously prayer, we might realize that some of these unreached people groups, they, they might have missionaries go in behind them or field representatives going behind them if we were serious about praying for open doors. Where do we get this in Scripture? It challenges us in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door. Jot it down. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. That God would open to us a door. Open doors. Pray for open doors. How do you pray for open doors? How do you pray for the peoples of the world? I want to give you a couple of things out of the toolbox today. Two things. The first thing I want to, I want to reference you to is Operation World. I don't have time to develop this, but this is absolutely... When I, have, when I get up in the morning and I start reading my Bible, I grab three things, four things, five things. I just remember my glasses and a pen. So, glasses and a pen, and then I grab my Bible, I grab my journal, and I grab this book. This is the book that I read when I pray through the world. And it, the great thing is, is this is the most updated edition that just came out last month. And it gives you literally every people group in the world, what's going on in the nations, how to pray for the world. It is an amazing resource. You can buy it online, Operation World. Another one that's even easier and freer, because it's very free. It's free. All right? Can't get much more free than that, right? And it's just a little booklet. The International Mission Board has put it out. And it's basically, and we have them back at the, at the Go Center. You can grab them on your way out today. And if you don't grab one, you forget one, you can go online. We have a link from our website that you can go and download your own and do your own at, at home. But basically what you do is you just follow the instructions of this book and you can actually adopt your own unreached people group in the world, one of the 6,426 that are out there, and you can begin yourself in your home with your family praying for an unreached people group. Guys and gals, we have got to pray for open doors. It has got to be a part of our life. But number two, we need to pray for open mouths. We need to pray that we'll have open mouths. We need to pray that missionaries will have open mouths when they go out. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 and 20 says, Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. The words uh, may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. But Paul was praying that at the end. He said, listen, to the end of Ephesians, after the spiritual warfare talk and all that kind of stuff, he says, guys, I'm going out in this world. I'm imprisoned. Pray that I'll not get scared. Pray that I'll not shut up. Pray that my mouth will be open. And you know what? We need to pray for one another that as we go into our own world, we'll have open mouths to speak out the mysteries of God's truth. But I want to give you one more. Number three, I don't think it will appear on the screen, but here it is. It's praying for open eyes. Jot this verse down. Acts 26, verse 18. It says, To open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan unto God. Pray for open doors. Pray for open mouth. Pray for open eyes. 
Really simple. Guys, say it with me. Pray for open doors, open mouths, open eyes. Say it again. Pray for open doors, open mouths, open eyes. Listen, if you can't remember anything else, you can remember those three things. When you start praying tomorrow for the world, start praying those prayers right there. Let's move on. The second thing that we need to consider to pray for, move towards in maturity, is that we need to read through the Bible. The entire word this year. I say need because I think that's a great goal. It's a challenge that Platt gives us, that we would all commit, everyone in our church, can you imagine, if we were committed to praying for the world and also to reading through the Word. We would read through the Word every day, 365 days this next year. We would be committed to that. On your way out today, another thing from the toolbox is on your way out today, the ushers will give you a one-year Bible reading plan. Don't start this week because we're not asking for commitments this week. We're asking for commitments next Sunday. I want you to just pray this week. Say, can I commit to that? Can I commit to reading through the Word every day? You can take this plan and you can open open it up and you can see day by day Chapter and verse, you'll read a little bit out of the Old Testament, a little bit out of the New Testament, a little bit out of Psalms and Proverbs every single day. So you'll get a variety, but every day you can be anticipating hearing from God. And by the end of this time next year, you'll have read through the entire Word of God. Think about it. Pray about it. Number three, the the third challenge he gives us is to sacrifice my money for a specific purpose. Sacrifice my money. For a specific purpose. If you think about sacrifice, I love this definition. Sacrifice is giving up something I love for someone or something I love even more. It's whenever I realize that, listen, I love God more than I love direct TV. I love the unreached people groups of the world, the under-resourced peoples of the world. And if I don't have space in my budget, remember the ABC budget? If I don't have space in my budget... When God challenges me to give and to help somebody out in need, I don't have space, then all I say is, I can't, God, you'll give me more money than I will, God. And all of a sudden, He gives us a raise and we don't do it. What we have to do is we have to go through and develop a prioritization of our life and then there will be space. Another tool that we have that is truly a tool, and I want to encourage each one of you, if you haven't read through it, is radical. We have a ministry budget of our church that is committed to... Committed to world missions and globaliz- uh, and the gospel proclamation throughout the world and to church planning. You want to look for a place to something meaningful to give to and you're not giving? Give to, give to the ministry budget of the church you belong to. You don't belong to Grace Point? Don't give money here, please. Find your church that you're going to be a part of and give your money there. Where you're receiving blessings and input and instruction, you need to... I advance that movement of that church wherever you belong. For some of you today, listen, the radical challenge may be just to tithe. You've never tithed before. But the radical challenge of your life is to give a dime out of every dollar, a dollar out of every ten, ten out of every hundred, a hundred out of every thousand. Am I doing my math right? Can, can, can I do that? Can I commit to that much? For some of you in this room, it may be so much more than that. Lori and I, five years in a row, we, we, we felt like God was calling us to give a double tithe, to give a tithe to the ministry budget of the church and give a tithe to the, to the, to the building of this campus. And for five years we did that and we look back with zero regret. 
What is it that God's challenged you to give to? What cause, what belief is He believing in that He's calling you to be a part of? Number four, the fourth challenge He gives us we need to pray about is the time that we would all spend, that I will spend time in another context. That I will spend time in another context. Now, this is a bold challenge for a church of 800 to 900 people. I'll promise you that. But we are challenging every member of Grace Point Church to, in 2011, to consider serving in another context than the American context in which you live right now. That could be serving in Arkansas in an impoverished area of the, of the, of the southern delta of, of East Arkansas. It could be serving in West Africa. It could be on a mission trip, a vision trip to, to Central Asia. It could be in Haiti and helping to rebuild homes after the earthquake. It could be something somewhere. It could be helping to build an orphanage, to complete an orphanage in Zambia where we have started a process and it's near completion. What would it be? Where would it be? How would it be? That I would make space and time in my life. And so you have another tool in your toolbox by this little sheet of paper that was in your worship guide today. We have 12 trips planned for in the next 12 months of 2011 that we want you to consider being a part of. This is not an advertisement. What we're doing is we're saying, listen, this is a commitment that I believe is biblical this is a challenge that's biblical. And for us to not provide avenues and environments for you to fulfill that, that wouldn't be right. We'd be missing it as a church. So I want you to take this this next week. Don't do it today. And I want you to pray about where you might go for two weeks, a couple of days, wherever it is, around the world in 2011. Making space in your life for that. Number five, and I'm finished, is that I will commit my life to a multiplying community. Remember those fr- that phrase we said earlier? Multiply or reproduce everything. I would hope that in your world and in your life you would develop the mentality that I want to be a part of a church that's multiplying. I want to be a part of a body life group that's multiplying. I want to be a part in my life of multiplying my faith and passing on my faith to other people, to taking what God has done in my life. Listen, this will not be, if you take these challenges, this will not be an easy challenge. This will be a hard challenge. It will be a very hard challenge, but I pray that you will take it. Would you bow your heads with me? Not to end abruptly, but to end in a moment of pause. Silent reflection in your own heart. What is God saying to you right this moment, at this time? About your own life, have you become lazy in your your hearing of God Is your reticular activating system full intact in blocking out the sound and the voice of God in your life? Have you you reached a point of becoming a consumer of religious goods and services that you're not contributing? When When you ought to be teaching, you're actually still just being taught. 
Have you slipped into mediocrity and lost sight of the vision and the movement and the friction of maturity? Movement generates friction, which generates change. How is He changing your life? These five challenges are something that I deeply, deeply want you to pray through this next week. And come back next week ready to hear one final message in this series, ready to respond. Lord Jesus, take this week and rock our worlds. Bring us to a point of decision that we would wrestle with the discomfort that we have felt, with the challenges that we have been handed, with the call to a 12-month commitment to pray and to read Your Word and to serve and to give and to be a part of a multiplying community. That God, that we would have a new DNA about our our very individual selves, that we would not be the shallow followers of yours that so much marks the American Christian model today. Lord, we ask that you would be with this moment of giving. And may it be, again, Lord, a moment of a radical expression to you. We pray this. In the mighty and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.